You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. Thank you, Keegan and the worship guys. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. I really mean that. I really didn't know who was going to be here today. Uh, wow, it's great crowds on the Women's Ministry Weekend and the coldest, hopefully the coldest day of the year. Uh, some of you got your kids ready and all that. I thought there would be a lot more uh, live streaming, live streaming uh, going on. So uh, it's good to see you here today. Um, so last week Chris preached and uh, he shared that when Mike approached him, uh, he, he asked him to preach and he agreed and then Chris said, hey, you know, what do you, are we doing, John? What would you like to preach on? And, and Mike just said, hey, what has been happening in your life over like the last year? And Chris uh, preached a wonderful message. If you hadn't had it, listened to it, it's on the app. Uh, just about what God's worked and uh, powerfully and uh, through some uh, hard times in, in this last year in his life. And so uh, I just thought I'd share with Mike uh, how he approached me. Uh, I think he went to Chris, but he couldn't find me, so he texted me. Uh, so he said, hey, you want to preach on the 14th? And uh, I was like, well, I'm moving Kerrigan to Arkansas and she's coming back from Europe. No, not really. But my response was, yep. <laughs> and, uh, and so he said, uh, how about you want to preach the last message at the downtown campus? And then, if you know me, my eyes started watering, and I was like, oh, wow. And so it's not, but it's going to feel like it by the time I'm done. So uh, it should be. So uh, it's my last chance to preach here, and I'm going to use every, every minute we got here this morning. So, uh, But I want to share with you, you know, I want us to, to look at the legacy that we carry, the legacy that we are entrusted with from the past that we carry into a future, uh, and it's, it's a special one. And so this week I did some digging. Uh, we have some uh, archives. It's really a box in the storage room, but uh, I went and got that box and found some old pictures and some documents and started researching some things, the histories, some narratives of our church. And I just wanted to show you a picture. This first thing is a picture of where you're at right now. This was the former Family Life Center known as Yoder Chevrolet. How many remember Yoder Chevrolet? There's one. Okay, one. All right, one. Yoder Chevrolet was here. Uh, This area was the shop. Uh, But when I came here, this was a cement floor with uh, with some wax on it because with all the oil residue, they waxed it and it never would seal. It just was, uh, it had a wax spot and then a non-wax spot. And you had to, it's kind of like the Boston Garden. You had to know where you could take off and do a layup from and where you shouldn't. Um, and so, but the cement was the floor of that. So they, they, they tore that down. Matt, remember this, right? So they tore that down. The, uh, the picture after this, was, this was taken right before it was torn down. Uh, and they used it for a long time, the front part at least, and uh, until the roof collapsed in a snowstorm, I believe is what I heard. And so uh, then they had to tear it down. And this building was built, uh, that was bought in 76, I think I read. And then this building uh, was built in uh, 1993, I believe. Uh, and so in its current state with some upgrades along the way, uh, some big upgrades. But um, so some things here I want to share you. So there's some documents I went through. Uh, some of them are from, um, this, this is an old church membership record book. Uh, and in the first pages, it's all alphabetical. And you can look at memberships. 
And uh, it's got like things like they joined the church in four of 22. That would be 1922. So uh, I don't think it's 17. I would think it's 19. But anyway, so and things like that. And in the back was records of their, um, of their conference meetings, which was actually our members meetings, business meetings, uh, conference meetings. So they've changed names. Uh, and then uh, several other documents. What's more documented is... Uh, our women's ministry, the Women's Auxiliary, WMU and all that, they kept meticulous notes of how many people they visited, how many the offerings they took, uh, who spoke. And, and so I read through a lot of those. Uh, this week I had to go to Diamonds and buy some uh, readers uh, and, and try to figure out how to read cursive again and <laughs> translate. So I felt like I was uh, doing some hieroglyphics at times and some beautiful handwriting on some, and then some it's harder. But this was uh, some notes from a meeting of the Women's Auxiliary. And if you look down, uh, there's some things. Uh, so it says about the one, two, three, four, fifth line, ladies voted to send eggs to Buckner's Orphan's Home in Dallas, Buckner's Children's Services. Uh, and so, and then it said Wednesday, April 8th. Committee appointed to solicit eggs. We had, that's so baptistic. We had <laughs> to form a committee to buy eggs. Form a committee to buy eggs. That is really there. Uh, and, so, <laughs> and so they actually would send, sent those. I read another thing where they sent those uh, on the inner urban. If you didn't know that right next door, uh, the Greenwick building was the generator building. For the interurban, it was an all-electric tr- uh, train. That, that's the tracks that run down this street right here uh, between Diamonds and downtown and here that you see. Those aren't ru- I mean, they're ruins, but they're important things. So that interurban, you could go from Denison to Waco on an electric train, okay? We'd like to have that now, wouldn't we? It's like in the 1920s. So they, they in other notes, they talked interurban. They allowed them to deliver those eggs for free. It also traveled mail and things like that, so there was a paid service to do that. Uh, but they, they got that to be delivered for free to the orphans in Dallas, and they did a lot of deliveries to that. And so uh, that was, that's right next door, the en- en- engine, and then the next building that was, that's the salon was the ticket area and the offices for the interurban station. And so, uh, so that was interesting. Another thing I read, this is really interesting. So it's out of, out of focus a little bit, my camera, but it's talking about the communion service, and it says we have no record of what the uh, type of containers our early church members used, okay? So I'm taking communion. But if you read the second paragraph, it says the first communion bread was made by Mrs. Mount. She made the unleavened bread of flour and water for over 40 years. She and Mrs. Netherly prepared the communion table, and a deacon bought pure wine. <laughs> pure wine taking communion once yearly. I'm going to say that the early cups that they don't have no record of were bigger than the ones we drink out of. <laughs> I guarantee you. They did pure wine. They were not given those little bitty glasses that we get. So pure wine. I just want to say this. Right now, uh, we, we get our supply. We don't have to keep it in the refrigerator or anything. We just walk to Diamonds, right? That's always been the case. Just buy even the Sunday ever. Oh, yeah, did anybody buy juice? No, we walk over and get it. So precedent is set that we have a new building right next to a winery. So <laughs> just going to say, deacons, uh, there you go. So the new FBCVA. But, uh, so that was interesting. So this one, um, 
This one is pretty powerful. So the second paragraph, this is again the w, Women's Auxiliary, uh, which sponsored these groups and still does in today's Baptist world, uh, the WMU. It says, we discussed at length, I like that, at length. And we know, if they said that, they meant it, right? We discussed at length the need of sunbeam slash RAs and GAs. Sunbeam was for uh, younger than GAs and RAs. So it was a mixed group of boys and girls. And then RAs and GAs is a ministry for boys and girls. It's what we call it today. We still, we don't do it in the fashion, obviously, that they did in 1929. But realize that. That was written in 1929. And still today, we are ministering to the needs of gender of the boys and girls in separate fashion that they need in a, gr- in a specific growth discipleship process in our church. That's what they wanted. That's what they discussed at length. And that's what we continue to do today. And that is powerful, powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. 1929. So the next image here we have. Uh, so this is <coughs> in this document, the history of First Baptist Church. Uh, this is a real life drawing. And I think you might have could draw this. But anyway, this is not a blueprint to specifics, but this is the First Baptist Church, uh, First Baptist Church Van Alstine, uh, the original building. And so uh, that was built in 1892, and it lasted for four years, maybe because they didn't have any blueprints and uh, that drawing. But it lasted for four years, and then it was torn down, it said, uh, when they bought new land or had new land donated. And that land would be by the current Quick Check. And so this next building uh, was the second phase church that was built near Quick Check area. And you see quite a substantial change. Reminds me of the one in how the, the Christian church, uh, uh, the guard, Summit Gardens, I think it's called now, but behind downtown, kind of looks like that a lot. Um, and so the spheres there. And this is, I bought this plate off of eBay about 20 years ago, I think. And so... Um, so it says hand-painted down at the bottom for Baptist Church, Van Alstine, Texas. And so that was built at the cost, in 1896, at the cost of $3,750. Yep. Then the next building we have is the one you are aware of. This was started in 1919 and finished in 25. That's what they always say. Not really sure what that means as far as, you know, where in the progress along the way they, they worshipped in there, gathered in there. Uh, I know that there's things like in the downstairs, they, uh, I was told that in 1947, they, they put in walls, they put in classrooms in the basement is what I read. And then uh, later, like, uh, 10 years later, they went back in and renovated and put hallways. Now, we don't think about that. But if you remember some really old houses that your grandmas might have lived in, there was no such thing as a hallway. You went from one room to the next room to the next room. And so in order to get deep back, that's why there's light switches and those doors and all that. It really makes no sense over there. Um, and so you just had to go through all different classes to get to maybe the class you wanted to go to. Uh, they invented hallways at some point. Uh, and so, but in this picture, you don't see much of our church. Uh, it was taken on a winter scene like tonight and tomorrow morning. Uh, we had a lot of trees in front. If you go over across to the sidewalk, you'll see circles in the cement where there was cement and then the trees were taken out and then cement was put in and there's circles in front. Um, 
But I asked the guys earlier today, I was like, what, what stands out to you? And the first thing they said was the Diamonds Building, which is probably where the brick ends off. And then there's an addition on the back. I don't know. But it's very similar with the, the uh, kind of the overhang there. Uh, but I don't think it was that far because if you notice, there is something that's not there that's odd. Presley notices it, and uh, Mandy still hasn't seen it. Uh, but uh, there's only one pitch roof on our building, so there's not the second smaller pitch roof. Okay? So that was a house. That was not the parsonage. We were glad that that was not. I asked about it later on. They said that an a, a older lady lived in that house. The land was donated, and we built the church right next to it. I'm not sure if there's six inches to go between that. Uh, what a neighbor, right? You talk about uh, zero lot line. They, we built right next to that house. Uh, and so what a, what a crazy thing. So there's not much space if you go over there. You know uh, our drainage ditch called the sidewalk that goes over there uh, and, and diamonds, you know. Um, it's just not, not a whole lot of room over there. So I'm figuring that diamonds uh, added that part that's metal. There's a brick part and then there's a metal part. If you go out here today, you'll see. Uh, so anyway, that's a winter scene. But this was found in one of the notebooks of, uh, this was the whole paragraph. The First Baptist Church of Van Alstine was dedicated on the first Sunday in March, 1925. We might, we might do that by the first Sunday in March, 1925, uh, 2025, right? Uh, dedicate the next one. So, uh, and so that, that is the only, that's the biggest mention of the new building in our a members meeting notes, so the conference notes. Uh, and so just to let you know that there was mention of the communion cups, and there's no mention anywhere that I found of the costs or who made them of the stained glass windows. There's no record of any of that information in there. Uh, this is the only information. But we do have two articles that were written Outside, not the Van Alstine leader. It looked like some kind of two, maybe one, one or two of the Dallas newspapers, believe it or not. Uh, and so there's, uh, I'm going to read from one of them. So that you can see the old church there that's pictured and the new building uh, across the street in 1925. But let's read and see if there's any similarities between 1925 and 2024. So follow along with, in your app. If you want to look in your app, I have this written down. I don't have them on the screen. But it's a, from the article, from this article, of self-denial of worshipers uh, were not the university's nursing college helps lift debt on edifice. I don't know what that, I didn't really, I, I don't know where that's parted in there, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, 45 years ago, in 1881 to be exact, a small company of professing Christians formed themselves into a body to which they gave the name First Baptist Church Van Alstine. I love this. Those were the days of pioneers, of men and women who blazed the trail for their religion, their God, and what had been a wilderness, and in what was still, in many respects, virgin civilization. That is an amazing paragraph, entry paragraph, of what uh, these people were doing in this area in 1881. We just don't know the hardships of living here. Can you imagine not knowing that the Arctic front... We had 70-degree weather one day. Can you imagine not knowing that this Arctic front was coming? Can you imagine just waking up to that and the reality that that's the world they lived in? No pre- we knew two weeks ahead of time this was coming. I cannot imagine not knowing. Anyway, of the members of this group, but one, 
So Mrs. D.K. Tate of Van Alstine has lived to witness the growth and development of this organization into one of the leaders among the churches of the Baptist denomination in North Texas. This growth and development came as a result of the work, hard work, consecration, and faith in the God of whom the believers back in 1881 placed their most sublime trust. In 1919, the members of First Baptist Church decided that a new edifice was needed due to the growth of the membership and expansion of the organization's activities. Sound familiar? The committee into the hands the matter was placed secured the plans for an edifice estimated to cost $25,000. And within a short time, actual work was begun. C.E. Carter, one of the older members of the church, gave the lot located on the edge of the business section of Van Alsine on which the structure was to be erected. As the work progressed, and due to the fluctuations of the price of commodities during that period, it was found that the original estimate did not cover the actual cost. <laughs> Sounds very familiar to people who built a house in here. Um, and it became necessary to secure through a loan the sum of $14,000 to assure the completion of the building. Reverend Virgil Haley, the pastor here, formerly of Fort Worth, announced the inauguration of a campaign to raise by subscriptions the amount required to liquidate the church debt. The response was liberal and instantaneous, and at that service at which the announcement was made, more than $5,000 was subscribed. Within a matter of weeks, the entire amount was subscribed. One of the notable features of that take of the subscriptions was the fact that out of 380 members of the church living or near Van Alsine, 343 actually contributed. These contributions ranged from 50 cents to $1,500. 50 cents. Many members of the church practiced the most rigid of self-denial in order that they might contribute to the fund. One instance of this kind being that the woman who gave up the purchase of a much-needed winter coat gave money, therefore, to the church. The reality of a winter day like today, the reality of, of, a, of a move to a new building, both those things hit physically and spiritually of the legacy given before us. On October 1, the collection of subscriptions began and on February 15, 1925, it was announced that the entire amount of indebtedness had been collected and paid. It is believed that in contributing more than 11000 in addition to their payments into the church budget for regular expenses, and within a period of time, no less than four months, the members of First Baptist Church have set a record for any church in any place in Texas the size of NLC. I love that sentence. It's kind of like... The members of First Baptist Church have set a record for any church in any place in Texas, south of Howe, north of McKinney, east of White Wright, <laughs> and the size of Van Alstine. It was very, it's like, wow, they really clarified that. So the reality is, uh, it was an amazing thing, right? Uh, and, and the reality is, is a hu- almost 100 years later, that has been used as a tool to preach the gospel, make disciples, and baptize people who have continued faith, who have gone on to overseas, to, uh, to continue to go out into the world of, uh, that, that beyond this town. And we get to continue the legacy, and it's very important, okay? I, the realization is uh, um, I came here 28 years ago. My family, I grew up in Oklahoma. 
Uh, Christy and I went to uh, Southeastern Oklahoma State, and uh, we got married. We, uh, she got a job. She's older than I am, uh, one year, but she got a job, and uh, she went to Pottsboro to teach school and coach, and uh, I graduated in four and a half years. Some of y'all would think it was a lot longer, uh, but in four and a half years, and um, I was a social studies education major, and I did my student teaching in the fall of uh, that year when we first married in Pottsboro, and then they had a teacher resign, and I took over the special ed department, and uh, worked in the special ed department as a long-term sub, as a first-year, first-time teacher, and became special ed certified. I could teach 12 subjects. I became PE certified. I thought I was, like, ready to be hired. My wife was coaching this town. I proved, you know, uh, myself worthy to the school, and I said, hey, I'm ready to get paid for this, you know, and uh, <laughs> to start here, and, and uh, they said, well, can you coordinate the offense? And I was like, uh, no. And they're like, well, we don't have a spot for you. And so I hit the trail the next week. I was pretty disappointed in that. Uh, I hit the trail to all the Grayson County schools, dropping off this thing called a resume that was printed on paper, uh, delivered in person, and thrown into a stack uh, right next to the uh, superintendent's secretary's desk, you know, right there, the huge stack, and went to all the schools and didn't get any bites. And on the way back, uh, all small schools who need, wanted a football coach in order to teach history. And, uh, and I just wanted to teach history. And on the way back, I stopped in. I don't know, remember, I didn't set to do it. I just, I, I'd always served in college and as a student pastor uh, in small churches in Oklahoma. We were still doing that. We were driving back to Christie's hometown to serve on the weekends. And that was my plan, teach school, serve in the church on the weekends and be a good church member and to serve, and, uh, but not to commit fully to uh, full-time ministry. And I'd seen that my dad was a pastor, and we moved a lot, and it was hard. Uh, I didn't want to do that, and uh, so I was making deals with God. And, uh, and so I stopped in there and talked to the director of missions and, and uh, told him about my experience and everything. He put me on the phone with Brother Jimmy. And, uh, and so we talked, and, and he had made a statement that said, well, I know they're, they're looking for a student pastor, and in their gym they have, they have an apartment where the student pastor would stay coming from seminary usually on the weekends. And there's an apartment up there, uh, with a small room with a bathroom and shower, with, a.k.a. apartment. And, uh, and so um, and we lived there for about six months when we first came here. And uh, so, but all I heard was gym. They have a gym. Because in my world in Oklahoma, you were a highfalutin rich church if you had a gym. All the churches I grew up in, they didn't have gyms. The youth had one little big classroom with everybody's old couch, uh, you know, that would have gone to the dump, but it went to the church instead. And that's what we built youth ministry around was used couches. And so uh, the reality of serving at a church with a gym where I could play basketball, back then I played basketball. And, uh, and so I was like, oh, I love this. So this, is, this is awesome. They have a gym. Now, that's superficial. I'm admitting that to you. But let me tell you something, this church was superficial too because when I put my resume in, all they saw was that I was married because their previous youth minister was dating a 16-year-old at his previous church. And, uh, and so when he got fired, and so the reality was all they saw was this guy's married. And uh, so we both had terms that we were only looking on the resume for, uh, you know, and we could care about all the rest of it, you know why I'm here. So uh, they didn't care about anything else. And so... Uh, here I am 28 years later. We didn't intend to be here 28 years later, 
Um, but the reality was, uh, it was an amazing thing. Two weeks before, less than two weeks before school, you're not supposed to be able to get out of contracts. Uh, Christy, uh, there was a coach that was driving, a female coach that was driving from Pottsboro to Van Austin and had been serving. She wanted to go back to Pottsboro. Christy, uh, they, she wanted to leave. And we, basically, they switched positions, just traded each other. And she served in Pottsboro for over 20 years. And Christy's been a uh, teacher coach here for 28 years uh, since then. So it was a pretty good trade, um, maybe. So, but we've seen, right? I never thought I'd live in a town for 28 years, let alone in ministry. Uh, the reality is in Oklahoma, you can live in, uh, there's people live in towns, but they don't change. The reality is, is I feel like I've served in four to five different churches. This community's changed four to five different times over uh, in that 28 years of just, and it's always been a challenge. And so uh, in that, we're in another series of change. We're in a series of change in our church. Big change. You move a building, that's a series of change. We're in a pattern that we have talked about since, 19, since I've been here. When I came here, Disney was coming here. That's what we thought. And so when Universal Studios was building the little kids part, we were like, told you, Disney's coming. <coughs> but so here we are, 28 years later, still here. And the reality of seeing what I've seen. But th- things are real, right? It's real. And, um, and so I want to share with you just some things that, that indicators. We talked as a staff this week, and Mike mentioned this, as, as we look at metrics over the next year and really pay more attention to this. But we're called to know our flock. That's important. Numbers matter because it allows you to know your flock. And it identifies uh, where it, and identifying our identity as a church with numbers is unhealthy. And we don't want to do that. But we do want to know our flock. We do want to serve our flock. We do want to make sure our flock is involved and we're connecting and following up and, and caring for our flock. And so we count people because people count. And there's a, now a lot of churches will say they count numbers on Sunday morning and they discount heads. And they have 300, and which last week we had 343 people in services, just to let you know. The reality is if we only count heads over a month of time, you think we have 343 people because the week before we had 320, the week before that, you know, it's 270, and then you're like, well, we're, you know, high, we're 340. The reality is, is that's counting heads, not people. And so over the last couple of years, I've been counting people. My goal is to know your name within three weeks of you coming here in a service. Uh, and so figuring that out however I do because not everybody scans that little QR code and fills out the form, and it's really nice like that. And so, but there's ways to do it. And so I track, and I try to find, and so we, because the reality is, is if you don't, you don't know who your flock is, you're not going to know who your visitors are. And so you, you got to know the names of your people, and you got to know the names of the visitors. And so this, and I know there's a lot of people who say, you know, I don't, I would, I would go shake hands with somebody, but I don't know if they've been here for a long time or they're a visitor. They've only been here once or they, they're a long time church member, been here for, knew that this was Yoder Chevrolet. I don't know. I don't know. And I was like, you, you know how to know. I'm going to give you a secret. You know how to tell and you know how to make that, to find that information out. You walk over and go, hi, my name is Griff. What's your name? And then you start talking. That's how you know. Greet them. I know, it doesn't matter. Greet somebody you don't know. Whether, and you'll find out whether it's their first Sunday or they've been members here for a long time. It's okay. It's okay not to know that when you go to reach out your hand. And so, uh, but here's some things. This graph, just to let you know, the, bottom, the dark part at the bottom is unique attenders. So I take attendance by your name in worship. We do that in Sunday schools. We do it in Bible studies. We do it in kids' classes, community groups. I said Sunday school. I'm going to be in trouble. Uh, and so uh, we take attendance by name. And so in that, 
the blue is unique attender. You're a unique, unique attender. You are you. And so uh, that's only one person coming one time. That's one person that if they came once in that month, that would be a unique attender. So that's the dark blue line. You, up at the top, the little box, this is unique attendees for April 2023, 667. So the high months are April and October in that. If you look at that, the peaks are October and April. The low months are June and July, okay? And just to let you know, that's the peaks and the valleys in the church life. And um, so in April of 23, this last year, we had 667 people attend church. Obviously, Easter was in that. But, uh, and so in, in that, we knew their names, okay? And, but then the light blue is how often your name has come up either in kids' church, serving in that, uh, or like as a kid going to your class, uh, an adult going to community group, you going to a Bible study, that's all in that. So the reality is, is that attendance at church, they tell you that people come one to two times. We would say that people come and attend something in our building more than three times a month, which is a good thing. It shows an involved, uh, especially when most of those attendance figures are Sunday worship and community groups uh, that we really take attendance on. And so it tells us that almost down at the bottom, it says in, in April of 23, 2,757 people attended about something in those groups. So 600 people came 2,757 times. You can do the math, I can't today, of how many average that is. Okay, so a unique person came multiple times is what it's saying. And then if you look over here, the growth. January 22, we had 423 people who came 1,500 times. This is a misprint. That should say December of 23. Uh, that number grew to 622. So that tells you that in attendance, that's a diff- 423 to over 600 people attended in a month. Again, that's not just counting heads. If we just counted heads, we'd say there's 350 people attend our church. That's what pastors do. But the reality is, is that's individuals. And so then in that, the next step is membership. And you see before COVID, you see COVID, and you see after COVID right there. And so membership, we had, in two, when we started doing the three-step process, we had uh, less nine families join, and then we, no, 10, and then we had 12 families. Then in COVID year, we had three. The Moors were one of those three. There you go. And then we had 20 families. And you think, okay, after COVID, you didn't do all those processes, so the number should be up. Then the next year was 28 families. This last year was 39 families. Okay? And we know that's a family unit. That can be one individual or it could be a family of four. Okay? So the next graph just shows you uh, over those years, these are the family units, these are the adults that joined, and in those families, this is how many kids were in those uh, groups too. So you see it went from 10, I mean, 23 people added to our church, 34, 10, 66, 91, and 112. The reality is, is when you go in two weeks and you walk into that building, you say, we didn't build this big enough. You're right. But in 2019, when we were planning, it was big enough. But we have added 269 family members, faith family members, not just, I mean, that's not just a ten, I mean, that's not, that's membership that you've gone through a process and you committed and you're in groups and you're attending. That's, that's a huge growth in three years, okay? And so in that, 
We are carrying the legacy. What we read just a minute ago was that we are on the transition to a fourth building. Now, it's taken 100 years almost, 99 years between buildings when the first ones was four years, okay? But the reality is, is that a new church, as the church grew, new buildings were added. This is nothing new. It's in our history. And so because we have wanted to carry the legacy and to continue to, to share the light to our community, to, to this virgin civilization, uh, this wild frontier, and uh, what a frontier it is. And so today we're going to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. And, and as you go there, it, in my Bible, uh, there's a, a heading for that. And it said, a call to persevere in the faith. And that's what we want to do today. The challenge of what we're doing is we're, we're continuing the legacy. And so how do we do that? I'm just going to be honest with you. The way you continue the legacy is that you continue, you do the things that you're supposed to be doing. Okay? The methods might change, but the, uh, the avenues that you do it, but just like the RAs and GAs started in 1929 to minister to young boys and girls, it looks different, but we're still doing it, right? And so here's some things we're called to do in Scripture. Therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, and with hearts sprinkled clean and evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together, as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. So the first thing you see there is a call for us to draw near to God. And those first sections of Scripture in the, this uh, section of Hebrews is talking about uh, going to God in confidence, right? And it's something we, we should know as Christians and mature believers that we can approach God in confidence because he's a loving father who forgives our sins if we only confess them, that he... Uh, wants a relationship, so we desire to go to him. But the reality is this Hebrews is written to the Jewish people, and they did not enter and approach God with confidence, okay? And it's talking about, it says there in the holy places that this uh, opened up through the curtain. And you know in the tabernacle and the temple, there was a curtain that separated where just only one person could go in once a year to make atonement for the people, and it was called the Holy of Holies. And you didn't approach that with confidence, you have approached it with fear and trembling. So much so that if you didn't do things right, if you didn't cleanse yourself and prepare your heart, and you entered that area as the high priest, the only person who could intercede for his people, if you were not clean and pure and you entered that, you could be struck dead. So they tied a rope around your leg that if you died, they could pull you out because they couldn't go in there. So the reality is, is you don't approach a room like that with confidence. But God is saying that when, when, when Jesus died on the cross, he's telling the Jewish believers, when Jesus died on the cross, we know that they were making fun of him, that he was king of the kings, king of the Jews, all this kind of stuff. And then once he gave up his spirit, what happened? History tells us, the Bible tells us, historians tell us and agree that an earthquake happened and, a, and an eclipse 
The sun was blotted out and the earthquake happened. And in that earthquake, it is not by chance, it's not by coincidence, it is by the will of God that he enacted an earthquake to tear the curtain from top to bottom. And, and by the flesh of Christ and what he did in the finished work of the cross, tore that, that symbolism that of he is the high priest. He has entered into the holy place. He has made atonement. And therefore, you can walk with confidence into that place that you can never walk with confidence. And we can approach God and we should draw near to God. We should worship him. We should gather with saints. We could gather and sing like we've done because of the finished work of God. Let us draw near to him with a sincere heart knowing that he forgives and we've been clean, cleansed by the blood of Christ. That's importance. That's full assurance. The next thing it tells us is let us hold to our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. I listened to a podcast driving back from Arkansas yesterday about Napoleon. Because that's what cool guys do. And, uh, and it was talking about when Napoleon made this comment that, um, that more battles are lost by the lack of hope than the spilling of blood, something to that effect. The reality is, is that battle, he would r- dr- ride up and down the lines, encouraging his people to stay in the line, to stay in the fight, to not give up, because the battles weren't about spilling blood. It was about dropping the guns and running. And if he could keep the people involved, it was a loss of hope that lost battles, not, the, not death, not spilling. It was when they thought they were going to die, they ran. And so the reality is, is hope is important. Let us hold on to our hope. The author writes in a present tense because you can't hold on to hope in the past. You can only hold on to hope into the current now. And when we need to hold on to hope is when we feel like dropping it. When we feel like the, conse- the, the circumstances around us, uh, we're focused on that. And they start to realize that, um, that maybe Jesus isn't for real. Maybe this God doesn't love me. Maybe these things are beyond, beyond his love for me. But we hold on for another day for him to be proved faithful. Because that's what the scripture says. We hold on for he who has who is promised is faithful. Our hope is not that we can and what we build and what we hold on to, but in the name of Jesus. And that's what we're supposed to hold on to. That's what we do. And then lastly, the main part that I want to share with you together is what we do as a church. Let us encourage one another. And so it says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let's compete against each other to outdo each other in good works. That's what I was saying. Okay, that's, a, that's some of us who uh, competitor edges and stuff like that. Like Chrissy Cooper, she wants to win every game, okay? So the reality is, uh, you know, we're, we're competing against each other to stir up good works, And so uh, that's what we're called to do, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day appearing. Gathering together fuels our faith. Gathering today, the reality is corporate worship on the Lord's day is one of the primary means by which disciples are made. The scripture tells us to gather together and you obeyed God's word today. You had every reason not to come today. Griff was preaching. You didn't know that. I didn't tell you that in the email, but I was preaching. And, uh, and, and Mike wasn't preaching. And it's super cold, and you didn't park your car in the garage. You, don't, you can't park it in it. So it's cold, and it's iced over. And you, the women's retreat, and you had the kids and all this, but you came. You came. 
And the reality is, is this is important. The gathering, the word of God is read and preached, and it's the basis of our message. We gather to hear from God and his word for the truth for our lives. It's important to start the week. God said it's important. It's important in our lives. When the church is gathered together, we also pray together. And I love that our church has uh, transitioned more so than ever in the last year that prayers are a part of our worship, not just a segue to the next part of worship. And, and that's important, what we pray together. When the churches gather, we also uh, we, we sing together. We raise our voices to lift our hearts and our eyes to sing the truth. We gather together to lift up, to lift and encourage others by that you showed up shoulder to shoulder to worship God. And in that, no matter what's happening happened this last week, what's happening next week, we do this together. And it lifts our spirits. It lifts our eyes off of the things of this world into where we should. We sing together. We sing truth through our hearts. And we sing truth, our praises to God. In corporate worship, we see the diversity of our gathering. The reality is you look around right now, you might say this is not a very diverse group. And, uh, and that's maybe true. I mean, we, there, is, there are ethnicities involved in our church. Or, uh, and so, but they're looking around, you say, well, we're not very diverse. But our goal is to look like our community. And the reality is, is that in this room, there is diversity. There is young, in the two services, there's young adults who are not married. There's young adults who just got married. There's young adults with babies just gave birth. There's babies being held in the back. There's middle-aged adults with kids with uh, coloring sheets in here today. There's empty nesters. There's teenage parents with teenagers and preteens, and, and there's empty nesters, gray-headed old guys, single adults. There's the, this is a diverse room, and the reality is the church is one of the only places in our world that is diverse in that that we gather together with, with, these, with the generations, okay? If you had, the reality is that some people don't have grandparents, uh, but if you are blessed enough to have grandparents nearby and involved in your kids' lives, then your kids have a connection to another generation. The reality is that many people in our community moving here from the north and other parts of the world, or their parents are deceased and their kids don't know their grandparents. The reality is, is there's kids in our world who have no connection to somebody above their parents' generation. But in the church, in the church, the discipleship process is about generations investing in younger generations and younger generations encouraging older generations with their, with their energy it goes both ways. Wisdom goes one way and energy goes another, and it's beautiful. The reality is, is uh, you know, there are GAs who show up here on Wednesday night, girls that we talked about in 1929, uh, starting the group, and they show up here, and she was in the service, but Pat Kelly volunteers in that group. And that, they don't have a grandmother, but Pat Kelly is there talking to them, investing in them, connecting with them. And who all, anyone else to, uh, above the generations, we, we gather in Bible studies and we talk across generations and we encourage each other by um, what we know and wh- what we saw in the scripture that maybe uh, someone else didn't know. And we, we encourage each other that way. So together, together, we are diverse and we should look like our community we want to. 
and we are diverse, and it's a beautiful thing that only happens in the church. We gather together to look up from the trials and tribulations of the past and the unnamed days ahead. It calls for us to repent, to forgive each other, to forgive each other. The reality is, is that you don't serve in a church for 28 years without a church forgiving you. And you don't serve a people for 28 years without you forgiving some people too. It's a beautiful thing. Mike's been here 10 years. That's the same thing's true. Jason's been here uh, almost nine years. Uh, Keegan's been here five years. The reality is that is a beautiful thing that we live together enough. We share life together that we get on each other's nerves. We hurt each other. We fail each other. And then we forgive each other. We cry together and we get back up and we do better. Just like a family. A faith family. And when we gather together, you encourage. Just by walking in there, you have no idea who you encourage. One of those people is me. You encourage me. This is not about attendance. And this scripture that says some are in the habit of giving, not, a, not uh, the scripture that we read that, that said, uh, not neglecting the meeting together as some are in the habit of. The reality is, is that's not just about checking an attendance log. There's, there was days where that was the most important thing, and it's not the most important thing. Involvement and connection is important. That's what he's talking about, neglecting. It's the neglecting of connecting. Because when you connect, you, you bless and you're blessed in return. You, get, you give and you receive what's needed. You give what someone else has needed, and you get in return what's needed. I just mentioned the importance of gathering together as a corporate body, but we have to also go closer together. Intimate gospel-centered relationships are critical to our lives and growth. Jay shares in our, in our discovery lunch that we have three environments of growth, and this is a beautiful picture. We have rows. You're sitting in rows, okay? You're looking this way. And uh, in that, we worship. This is important. The scripture says it. But if this is the only context that we, the disciples are grown in, it doesn't, there needs to be more. And you do that when you go face-to-face and you sit around tables in Bible studies or you sit in circles without tables in community groups or D groups. And in that, you share life and you, your, your concerns, and you pray for what's on your heart and in your life, and uh, you study the scripture together, and you encourage each other by what you dug into that week, and that grows disciples. And those avenues, of not just one, but all. It's in the smaller groups where we connect. The reality was, is Griffin Christie were excited about Van Alstine, so much so that that Sunday night, we skipped away from the church we were serving in. We came over here. And I'm just going to tell you, we came to a Sunday night service. And just as you should not judge a book by a cover, you should not judge a church by a Sunday night service. <laughs> okay? But I was young. I was immature. And I kind of walked out judging our church on a Sunday night service. And Christy and I kind of looked at each other like, I don't know. I don't know. And then Nancy Mosby said, there's some people coming to over our house, some teenagers. Why don't y'all come over? You know what we did? We sat around the table, played some games, we ate some food, we laughed, and we joked. Hey, Christy, I walked out in love 
with a place that we might get a chance to serve at. Sitting at a table changes things. Looking face to face is important. It's in the smaller groups that we edify each other. You're missing out and someone else is missing out on sharpening you. Disciple Now is coming up. I used to run those. The worst day of the year is the Thursday before Disciple Now when you put people in groups and you split kids. And we used to ask kids, put two names down of kids you want to be with for the weekend. Stupidest thing I ever did. Just put them in groups. Don't ask them what they want. Because then it's like this maze of like connected lines of trying to put all these kids with who they want to be with. It's it's the worst day of the year. Then you publish it and sweet mom calls and says, Johnny is not with their friends they put down. And they're really discouraged. They're really not looking forward to this weekend. And I love those calls. Moms, that's an important call. But at the same time, I got to share with a lot of moms and say, you know what? Johnny put two kids down that he's not with. But six people put his name down. He's a leader. He's an encourager. Other kids look to him. They're the reason they're in this church. They're the, they're the kids that we're trying to reach with the gospel. And Johnny has a chance to be a leader because of his relationship with them. Relationships matter. Because in the Bible, there's a lot of one another scriptures that we can only do together. Be at peace with one another. Love one another. Outdo one another. Live in harmony with one another. Not pass judgment on one another. Welcome one another. Bear one another's burdens. All these lists. Stir up one another to love and good works. Outdo each other. Confess sins to one another. And pray for one another. Last night, I picked up my daughter from a mission trip to... to to uh, Florida where they served families on like a make-a-wish type of place. She served families, and she was talking about loving those kids and those families. And we transitioned at some point where she took out a bag of people she didn't know before that week who had written notes to each other, and she read these notes to me of people, Jaden read these notes to me of people who had gotten to know her that week who saw God work in her life that week, who saw the light she has for children that she wants to do for her career and her life and what she wants to invest in, they saw it, and they encouraged her by those notes. And you do that when you know people face-to-face, not when you're sitting at rows. These relationships might start at random. People who agreed to read the Bible together for one year together and meet together once a week. But when tragedy strikes, when hardship strikes, they are the ones to weep with you. They're the ones to clean your house for six months. When we go into deeper into relationships through discipleship, mentorships, and friendships, it's the context where we can rejoice with those who rejoice and we can weep with those who weep. We don't advertise, hey, join a group to weep with those who weep. But the reality is, is you need to be in that group before the tears start. It's important. It's how we love one another. And you get a chance maybe to serve someone who needs you. And lastly, there's a call for us to serve. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The church gives you an opportunity to be a body, 
we all are pieces of the body, is what Paul says. And when we serve one another, whether that's a greeter on Sunday or being a kids club volunteer, opening your beautiful new built home to a group of teenagers. Mike said you can, you can do junior high and they don't stay overnight, but they, they can do enough damage in those hours that they're there. But all the service done for the good of the body will help the church and its members flourish in the faith and carry the legacy. Service is a method for making disciples. It teaches us believers to sacrifice their time and their energy in order to bless others. And such joyful self-denial helps conform us to the invents of Christ. And I'm just going to say this. Do you know how edifying it is to a ministerial staff when we put out a Facebook post and an email blast to say we're looking for new volunteers for our first impression team and over 50 of you show up? I'm excited about a new building, but I'm excited about the life of our church where we have 50 people who want to serve each other. That is exciting times. And I'm just closing this. As a young man, I invested in young lives. Through the grace of God, I've gotten to witness growth of individuals. When you stay somewhere, you get to see it. The best thing about my journey was to be able to see kids from, from elementary school or even when they hit my junior high ministry to graduate, to go to college, to come back and serve at D-Now to come back and serve on staff, to come back and take your job and serve alongside of you, to come back and lead missions and preach. Chris preached last week when I met Chris at my introductory uh, get-together when I they were going to bring me on view of a call. I was in that room in there, and he was holding on to Stephanie's hand. He was three years old. He preached last week, and I get to serve alongside of him. That is beautiful when our staff, when there's three members of our staff say, this church discipled me, and now I get to disciple others in this church. That has carried a legacy that not every church gets to do. It's beautiful. But the reality is, is I lived as a 23-year-old when I came here, and a 51-year-old now. I've gotten to see the blessings of God's church in action over those years. But the reality is, as an older man now, there's investments that I have to realize I'm not going to see come to fruition. Am I willing to still invest in the same way for things that I will never see, but I know God will bless? The reality of young lives in the foster care system that I get to be a dad and a grandfather to, that I, that I will never know the difference that it makes in their lives but I'm doing it anyway. The reality is this lyric from a song is my mantra for my middle-aged, late-aged manhood. And it says this, so shall I plant sequoias and revel in the soil of a crop I know I'll never live to reap. The reality is, is a sequoia, you don't plant trees for you to sit under the shade. You plant trees for your kids to sit underneath the shade. You plant, in reality, you plant trees so that your future people who buy your house sit underneath the shade. <laughs> but that's an elm tree, a quick-growing Texas tree. The reality is that these sequoias that stretch to the sky, that take 200 years to grow to fruition or more. The reality is, is do I dream dreams beyond an elm to the point that I plant sequoias? 
And let me tell you something. There's nowhere else but the church where you plant dreams bigger than sequoias. There's nowhere else but the church. And what Jesus called us to do, it's called eternity. And so the reality is, is do you revel in the soil of a crop you might not ever see? Do you invest in a building? And let me just tell you something. I don't know if 100 years from now, that building we will walk into in two weeks will still be standing. And I think about the lady who sacrificed her winter coat. And I think about Mrs. D.K. Tate, who walked into that building over there and got to see it when she was one of the first eight people that started this church. And I wonder what they would think. They come back, and that building's not being used by First Baptist Church. The reality, though, is I would rather see a church minister to RAs and GAs and teenagers and families and a community that is still alive and active and breathing and growing and serving and gospel, spreading the gospel in our community and throughout the state and throughout the world than brick and mortar. That's my answer. And we get to invest in this legacy in the days to come by being the church with each other, for each other, alongside each other. And we'll never know the investment that we've made already or the ones we're about to make. But I know who my hope is in. And I'm willing to invest. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for a group of people who came out on a wintry day. But God, I thank you for this church, its history, its people, the legacy of the names of people that are no longer here, but encouraged by faith, who helped grow me, who forgave me, who changed me, who discipled me. Thank you for the continuation that our life lives on in eternity. And we can make a difference for eternity. And we thank you for the small parts we get to play, the 50 cents we get to give. May you bless it and use it to change eternity, change our world, change our community. We have faith in you. It's our only faith. It's in your most holy and awesome name I pray. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.